Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. So this idea of craftsmanship and the archetype of the craftsman, I think, is something very attractive to people. It resonates with us on a, on a visceral level almost. There's something about building things with our hands from scratch that just is satisfying. And there's something that we're drawn to. We'd rather buy something that we know was made by hand by a craftsman than some manufactured, mass-produced good. Um, but why is that? Why is it we have that attraction to building things? Why is it that we, we are attracted to this idea of the craftsman? Well, our guest today has written a book exploring that idea. He's an actual craftsman. He makes furniture. He also founded a furniture-making school in Maine. Uh, his name is Peter Korn, and he wrote a book called Why We Make Things and Why It Matters, The Education of a Craftsman. Fascinating book on a fascinating topic. And today on the podcast, we're going to discuss why what, what's this drive in us that wants that, that gives us fat satisfaction to build things with our hands um and then we're also going to talk about what craftsmanship sort of the ethic of craftsmanship can teach us about living a good life a fantastic discussion really fascinating delve deep into something uh, some deep topics um so i think you're really gonna like this so without further ado peter corn on why you make things and why it matters Peter Korn, welcome to the show. Thank you, Brett. Thank you very much. So you are a, a furniture maker um, who happens to write. Can you tell us how you got started into furniture making? Um, because this whole, I think this idea, when you started at least, there really weren't a lot of independent furniture makers. So how did you get into that? Well, I was fortunate enough to go to a Quaker high school in Philadelphia, Germantown Friends School, which I think was a great education, and then go to the University of Pennsylvania where I studied history. But all the, And I graduated from college in 1972, so I was sort of a 60s hippie kind of guy. And all the time I was in school, I felt like I was living like secondhand, and real life must have been somewhere else. And when I finished college, what I did was I took a job as a carpenter on the island of Nantucket, which at the time was a very quiet, uh, forgotten place, not, not the bustling uh, plutocracy, plutolopolis that it is today. And, um, 
And I, and I had never worked with my hands, and I came from a background where my father was a lawyer and my mother was an historian, and they didn't know anyone, at least socially, who worked with their hands. And in their world, working with your hands would really take you down the social ladder. So they, my father, at least, was pretty horrified that I took a job as a carpenter. And I took that job only because I moved to Nantucket because I wanted to live in this rural, beautiful place, and that was the first job that came along. So it was much to my delightful and pleasant surprise that I found out how rewarding and challenging carpentry was. Um, if I may continue. Sure, yeah. Uh, my father, you know, was quick to say, well, he, you know, he was just worried that with a with work like that, my my mind was going to be underserved. I was, you know, it was going to really be a, a truncated, not, that means short, and that's not the right word. Uh, Stifled. A stifled sort of life, however you want to put it, mentally stifled. Um, and I found that carpentry engages your cognitive problem-solving skills, for example, uh, to a huge extent. It's, it's, it's the, your brain is involved as well as your hand, and um, and I found that sort of work a wonderful way to grow into adulthood at the age of 20. And so how did you go from carpentry uh, to designing furniture? That's, well, that's sort of a leap. It, it's a little bit of a leap, but wood and tools are involved. Uh, I, so after two years as a carpenter, I was, when I'd been a carpenter for about two years and was gaining some sort of confidence in my hands, some friends of mine were having, uh, expecting a child, and this was the fr- my first friends who were expecting a child, and I wanted to make a cradle for them. So three days before the baby was due, I took some pine and some dowels from the lumber yard went into this unheated barn at the end of November um, where I froze my butt off um, <laughs> and and built a cradle from a picture I'd seen in a book. And at the end, you know, I went into that barn thinking that, that I was going to end up designing and building houses for a living. And I walked out of that barn just passionate to rediscover what seemed at that time, 1974, like the lost art of furniture making. This was before fine woodworking came out or all the other woodworking journals that have been around now for decades. And then there was almost nowhere where you could formally learn fine woodworking in this country. There, there were two places you could go to, the North Bennett Street School or the Rochester Institute of Technology, but I was completely unaware of them. I'd never met a craftsperson. So for me... Uh, it was like trying to learn this craft and rediscover it for myself just from a few books published in England. And it turned out there were, you know, I thought I was doing this in isolation, and I was. But at the same time, there were probably thousands or tens of thousands of other people in this country of, of my generation turning to various crafts in the same ignorant way. Uh, because we were looking for lifestyles that would be more seamless and fulfilling than what we perceived our parents' world presenting to us. So let's get to that question. So I think when people hear the word craftsman, and at least this, I do this at least, you know, they imagine you know the sort of the sturdy, industrious, independent man in his workshop with a beard probably, leather apron, rolled up sleeves, salt of the earth, um, and it's an archetype, I think, and it, that it's very attractive to people. And it's, also, it's become almost this like platonic ideal of what a craftsman is. But you make the case in your book that this idea of the craftsman that we have, the sort of romantic idea, is a fairly recent creation. 
Um, can you tell us about the arts and crafts movement of the 19th yes, century that spawned I'd love, this idea? I'd be happy to. Um, well, so the place to start is to realize that, that until the Industrial Revolution, which essentially took place between the late 1700s and the late 1800s, everything was made by, individual, by, by an individual, by hand, what we would today say by hand, uh, and nothing was mass produced. There were no assembly lines. There was, you know, there was no, there was no power-driven machinery except for water-driven threshing wheels or whatever, grinding wheels. And um, and so there was no need to to even have a concept like craft when everything was craft. And then what happened is the industrial revolution came on, came along. Uh, and I'm now speaking about Europe specifically, and even more specifically, England. And and suddenly, the trades where you worked by hand, many of them were displaced by manufacturing. And and so, craftsmanship became redundant. And uh, and it, by the late 1800s, that process had gone a long way, and there were. There were people in England, particularly John Ruskin and William Morris are the two most familiar names, who were very concerned, as I guess as social philosophers, that the conditions of labor in manufacture were really demeaning to the workers themselves, bad for them spiritually and bad for them morally, and that if workers, if the work was bad for the workers, then it and it was deleterious to their characters, that was bad for society. So they invented the idea of craft as a, an alternative method of making things where the worker would be fully engaged in the full process and in the quality of what they do because that would be more spiritually and morally beneficial to the worker and therefore society. And they before they invented craft, before the arts and crafts movement invented craft, in English the word craft did not mean a type of um, a type of object or a method of fabrication as we think of it today. The word craft was used meant what we now hear in coinages like witchcraft and statecraft, which is to say an ability to manipulate people. Uh, or situations cleverly. Uh, and so they invented this idea of craft, um, and their craftsman was someone's employee who would build someone else's design through from start to finish in a healthy environment. And that idea of theirs is, that, is what you just described, yeah. which has come down to us to this day, this Hallmark card-like image. Yeah of the craftsman as a skilled tradesman, secure in the knowledge of his hands and the strength of his character, calm at the workbench, and pursuing a simple, peaceful life in idyllic surroundings. But for my generation, which now I came to craft almost 100 years after they came up with this idea of craft, that idea was there unconsciously, because I'd never thought about craft. But at the same time, there was this whole overlaying of new ideas about craft that that those guys, uh, Ruskin and Mars, wouldn't have recognized. Uh, do you want me to go yeah, on? Yeah. What, what what did that new movement bring 
to the well you know, craft. for my generation what, what we very much saw craft as was an opportunity to be self-employed self-expressive self-sufficient and self-actualized uh, the obvious uh, common word there being self and this, you know thinking about this i i then came to see that that between the end of the uh 19th century and the end of the late part of the 20th century, which is where I was practicing craft for the most part, um, the, the normative idea in our society of what an individual is, of what the self is, had changed radically. It had been changing a long time, but it really changed quickly and radically in the 20th century. And the difference was that for all of human history, the individual had thought of himself or herself as belonging to a larger social entity, as sort of conceptualized itself, you might say, as like a finger on a hand. Mm -hmm. But in the 20th century, we saw the rise of this idea of the individual as being fully autonomous and separate and individual and rational and, and able to choose uh, everything that's choice. In other words, instead of belonging to society and being shaped by it, we started to see ourselves as being to pick and choose where in society we want, what ideas we like. And, um, and it was that idea of the fully autonomous individual that changed the way we approach craft. So that, so that another way to say this is that if you look at art over the millennia, um, artists tend to portray the place where they think truth resides and so you've got um, Greek art that portrayed this ideal of humanity outside of space and time. In other words, truth lay outside of humanity. You've got uh, a lot of uh, Christian art in the Middle Ages and the Renaissance that portrayed uh, scenes from the Bible, essentially, the idea being that truth resided in God's kingdom, in the Bible, as you know, it's expressed through the Bible, again, outside of man. And then, you can, then you've got the Hudson River School of Art uh, in the 20th century, which portrayed nature, and that went along with all sorts of enlightenment ideas about the noble savage, and so truth was thought to reside in nature. And then if you come into the, you know, the 1940s, for example, or abstract expressionism, You've got artists who are splattering paint or they're painting abstract things where the painting takes shape because every choice the artist makes is a response to whatever previous mark he or she has made on the canvas. And so what you get is people painting a portrait of their intuition, of their interior self, so that um, we are at a place then where truth resides internally and it's for us to discover as artists or as individuals, and bring forth to share with other people. It's a very different concept of what the individual is that has shaped my generation and subsequent generations of period. We're talking about craftsmanship, um, and it's, this is a topic that sort of is woven throughout your book, the idea of, like, what is craftsmanship? Because I think people have rough notions of it, right, what, what they imagine what craftsmanship is. But I think if you ask different people probably going to get different answers on what craftsmanship is. So how do you define craftsmanship? Like when does something become a, 
you're displaying craftsmanship whenever you're doing something. Well, I, I have to order, offer a definition, two definitions of craftsmanship. Okay. One is craftsmanship if you're talking about the, within, the, within the world of crafts themselves, uh, where people are fabricating objects out of actual physical materials. And if that's where we're looking to define craftsmanship, then we're talking about uh, it, it, craftsmanship is work or a work process that engages uh, hand skills. You, know, you have to, it requires developed skills. It requires an unwavering commitment to quality, and uh, and also a heightened understanding of one's materials. Those are the three elements that go into craftsmanship that are common to craftsmanship. And then you could think about craftsmanship when, for example, people will talk about a lawyer crafting a, a, a brief well, or manufacturers talk about the craftsmanship in their uh, automobiles, for example. Well, so now we don't have individual agency involved. That's been removed. And we don't always have physical materials involved, but we still talk about craftsmanship. And what remains there is that that, in, that implies a, a commitment to quality and a deep understanding of one's materials, even if one's materials are words or something that doesn't have any physical materiality. So this, there's this caring about what you do, commitment to quality, deeply understanding one's materials. Those are the elements of craftsmanship in general. Wedding season is coming up, and if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits start at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a long-time podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. All right, if you have a family, then you need to get term life insurance to protect them. It's one of the smartest financial decisions you can make, and the start of the new year is the perfect time to get it done so you can focus on whatever else the year has in store for you. Fabric by Gerber Life was designed by parents for parents to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Fabric has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget with quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. There's no risk to apply. They have a 30-day money-back guarantee, and you can cancel at any time. I remember when I was a new dad, I had a lot of thoughts going through my head. One of them was, how can I take care of my family? When I'm gone, if something happens to me. Well, it's one of the first things I did. I got term life insurance, one of the best decisions I made. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash manliness. That's meetfabric.com slash manliness. M-E-E-T fabric.com slash manliness. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company, not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions.
Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal of this is to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting our clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There is only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com manliness. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to help you find qualified candidates. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. All right, you got that in your head? Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors, and many of these instructors are former AOM podcast guests. You can learn negotiation from Chris Voss, leadership skills from Jocko Willink, how to master your habits with James Clear. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. So recently, I went through the Masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. A lot of useful information in there. Talked about the value of knowing a negotiation, how to use your body language and speech patterns to get your best out of a negotiation. Very well done. I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. Right now, listeners of our podcast can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash AOM. Masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. Why do you think it's, what is it about building with your hands though that can, that helps you, I don't know, get in touch with that idea of craftsmanship more so than, you know, a lawyer crafting a a contract. What, What is it about the materiality of craftsmanship, working with your hands that allows you to get in touch with that? Well, I think there's there's actually several ways to describe that, and I'm actually I think I'll try three of them. Sure. Um, one of them is that there's an experience that that creative people have in the studio. In this case, it could be craft, it could be painting, sculpture, um, it can be writing. In fact, that uh, Mihaly sent Mahali, if that's the proper way to say his name, who wrote, uh, wrote a book called Flow and some other books on this topic, he labels that this phenomenon flow, where you disappear. Your sense of, whole sense of time and self all disappears. You're so fully engaged in the work that that's all there is. And that turns out to be an immensely pleasurable, wonderful feeling. Um, and, and so creative people, you could almost say, enjoy their creativity or come to it simply for that feeling. Uh, but there's, there's a lot more to it, but that is one element. Um, what's so wonderful about craft, in addition to that, is that you can't, um, how can I say, it anchors your creative work, your ideas and your efforts substantially in the real. So, for example, when I'm writing, right, you, writing, you can put words together and it can suggest new ideas and you can go off on flights of fancy that are quite seductive, but they actually may be total nonsense. 
But when you're working with wood and chisels, for example, it, there's no question about whether a joint is tight. There's no question about whether a chisel is sharp. In fact, there's no question about whether a chair is comfortable. Like it's apparent to any user. So, so your your ideas, your suppositions, your efforts are checked by the real, and that's actually quite a healthy thing. Um, and that's one of that's one of the pleasures of craft. And another is that at the end of the day, you see what you've achieved. It, it exists in the physical world to be enjoyed, shared with others. Um, it doesn't just disappear off a computer screen, you know, onto the next thing. So at least those are the some of, some of the things that make craft such a delightful uh, thing to practice. So, oh, and one more. Oh, go one ahead. More, yeah, I love it. Yeah, this is fantastic. Yeah. There's this uh, it, there's this maxim in in craft uh, that that Bernard Leach, a British potter, is said to have stated uh, back in the last century, which is that. Um, Craft engages head, heart, and hands in unison. Mm. He said it a little better than that. Uh, and that is, I think, one of the things that makes it so fulfilling is that you are somehow, when you're, do, when you're engaged in skilled craft work, and let's say you're in that state of flow or not, it doesn't really matter, you're employing all of your bodily, all of your human capacities at once. You know, you're, you're engaging your actual physical capabilities, you're engaging your imagination, you're engaging your ability for cognitive problem solving, and you're engaging your creativity. And you you can't ask for more than that. You're right. You you mentioned how um, you found when you first started carpentry, you found that it not like what your father said, it would sort of dull the mind, that it actually engaged the mind. I've had that experience too when I've done sort of projects around the home. It's it's amazing how much harder sometimes a little project, a DIY project that I'm doing is than saying writing an article for the website is and how fun it is, right? There's a challenge yeah. there and you're, you're not going to stop until you solve it. Uh, and it, you just, you keep plugging at it, even though, you know, I should have given up hours ago. But you see, Brett, for me, the shoe's on the other foot. Okay. Meaning, meaning I'm, I'm, I'm used to solving problems in the wood shop, and so th- that becomes a fairly smooth process mm. for me. But when I sat down to write this book, all I started with were certain deeply held convictions that were almost more physical. I can't explain. Yeah. The sort of convictions you hold in the, in the pit of your stomach, in your, in your bones, mm-hmm. uh, then I had ways of expressing them with words. So for me, working with words w- was a process of trying to untie knot, one knot after another. Uh, and uh, it was a long, engaging, deeply engaging struggle that was wonderful. And I'd be dr- I'd write before work, and then I'd be driving to work, and I'd have to pull over to jot down the next little step for an idea as, as it unfolded itself. That was wonderful. Um, so... Here's a question I have. So right now, it seems like there is uh, we're having a renaissance uh, in the marketplace where you, know, you say handmade goods, artisanal things are hot. Everyone wants you know something that's you know they want something that's built by a craftsman. They want something that they know is not made by a, a giant corporation or a machine. And but what's funny is that you can buy a table that look that was built in a in a factory, and there'll be an exact same table built by a single person. 
right? But people will probably pick the one that was built by the person. Why is that? You have, you, you have just so hurt the feelings of that individual person. Well, I know, I know. But I mean, what is it, what is it that a person is buying? Because I guess it's a way of the, the third person of taking part in the creative process, right? I mean, what is it that we're buying when we purchase something built by a craftsman? Is it a story? Is it a sense of meaning? What is yes, it? Yes, it's all those things. Okay. It's, you're, 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 you're buying, well, first of all, I, I'm, I'm going to disagree or, or rephrase something okay. that you said. I'd appreciate um, that. Which is this, that if you were engaged in trying to make your living as a, as a furniture maker, for example, you would find that, in fact, it's really hard to find the market for your work, that the, the, the more skill you put into it, the more expensive it gets, the smaller your audience mm-hmm. becomes. And, uh, and in fact, it's my observation that, that my generation of craftspeople, um, I'll say this differently, I belong to a, a, what retrospectively is now labeled a movement called Studio Craft. And Studio Craft people made one-of-a-kind singular objects that existed as ways for them to develop their individual artistic voice and their individual skills and show them off, and I mean that in a positive way. Mm-hmm. Um, and those were very, ended up being fairly expensive gallery pedestal-type objects. Young people who are excited about designing and building things today, for, for the most part, aren't interested in making those precious gallery-style objects. There's, mm-hmm. a, I, there's a whole new movement that is sort of centered in Brooklyn that I call studio design. People are still designing and building wonderful things, but these are meant to be things that can be produced by others at more reasonable price points mm-hmm. uh, and sold to a wider audience. And there are other concerns like sustainability and community that somehow enter their design processes as well. So the, the sort of the cultural horizons to which people work have changed, and that changes the nature of the object. Um, so I think the objects younger craftspeople or des- product designers, however you want to say it, are making today actually are probably more marketable and have more of a market than those of my generation, but they're batch products. They're not the one-of-a-kind thing. Still, to answer your question, what sells them is the fact that they're authentic, that they did come from one person's imagination and one person's caring about their quality. And that is a story that has to be told. Otherwise, it doesn't, no one would know that. So, yes, you could say it was the product of the piece having a story. Yeah. Um, so one of the things I love about this book is that you talk about craftsmanship and the drive to build them, why it's so fulfilling. But you also explore how the journey of becoming a craftsman is also a journey on how life should be lived, uh, which is very Aristotelian in a way, right? Aristotle talked about, you know, virtue is sort of like, the practice of virtue is sort of like practicing being a craftsman of some sort. Mm -hmm. So how can craftsmanship uh, help us, or studying craftsmanship, help us live a, a good life? Well, so that begs the question, what is a good life? Okay. And, uh, and I guess that's the largest context within which I'm writing, is trying to answer that question. And it seems to me, based on my experience and observation, that a good life is one that provides 
the person living it with a sufficiency of meaning and fulfillment. Those seem to be the two qualities we're so hungry for that so often seem missing today. And I have come to define meaning as having a sense that your thoughts and actions actually make a difference in a larger moral sphere. And I've come to define fulfillment, at least for myself, as the sense that you are using your human capacities to the fullest. Well, practicing a craft is not the only way to achieve meaning and fulfillment, but it's a wonderful way to do it. And the fulfillment part comes as we discussed, because in craft you really are employing head, heart, and hand in unison, uh, all reading from the same page. And in terms of the work giving you a sense of making a difference in a larger moral sphere, if I can just talk about furniture making Mm -hmm. for a moment, uh, every piece of furniture describes the life to be lived around it, if you think about it. Uh, So the work you would see at Versailles, those very ornate, uncomfortable chairs, uh, incredibly expensive, they're describing there was a whole world of how you sat in a chair and how you related to other people, and all that is described by those chairs. The Shaker rocking chair describes a whole other attitude towards life, the idea that daily life and work should be lived as sacraments. Uh, so when you're designing furniture, in a sense, what you're always doing is you are trying to close, more closely and ever more closely approximate through the furniture how one, as a human being, might best live their life, what, what, what one's daily life should feel like, that sort of thing. Uh, so that's one example of, of how being engaged in a specific creative endeavor can be an exploration of how we should live as human beings. And really, in my mind, and I'm, I'm not a religious believer, so certainly from my point of view, the largest moral context that exists is the effort of humanity over all of its existence, the ongoing effort to define what it is to be human and how we should live. And I think that any time anyone engages in the effort of trying to bring something new into the world that matters not only to themselves, but matters to other people, they're actually engaged in exploring the parameters of existing ideas of what it means to be human and how we should live. And it's the fact that they're doing that in that larger context that gives their life meaning. Um, And I'm not saying anyone in the creative arts, for example, is ever conscious of that context or thinking about the ideas that I'm discussing. I'm just saying this is what I see as the underlying reality to all creative effort. And not just creative effort in the painter's studio or the craftsman's shop, but creative effort in the science lab, creative effort in starting a new business, creative effort in trying, coming up with a new recipe in your kitchen. These are all expanding the boundaries of how you think about the world, and uh, which means that you're coming up with new ideas about who you are and how the world around you works. It's fascinating. Um, and, and you 
we could talk more about this, but uh, time is limited. So uh, I definitely recommend people to check out the book. Um, where can we learn more about your work? Well, I have a website for the book, which is uh, petercorn.com. But really, my real work in life has been uh, founding and running a school called the Center for Furniture Craftsmanship, a nonprofit school in Rockport, Maine. And the website for the school is woodschool.org. And that's what I've been doing for the last 23 years. I'm, I'm much more of, and these days, an arts administrator and a teacher than I am an actual craftsman. And um, I'm one of 40 people, 40-plus people who teach at this school. And uh, that's where you would really see and learn what I, what I do and what I'm passionate about. Is, is the school open? Do you, have, like, do you have classes for beginners, people who've never done furniture building ever? Yes, we, we have an extensive... Uh, summer and fall schedule of one and two week courses that many of which are entry level in furniture making but also in wood turning and in carving and other aspects of woodworking and then uh, we the rest of the year we run a nine month furniture making course and a bunch of three months long turning and furniture making courses which most people take because they want to become professional at it, but they are also open to and attended by many amateur woodworkers as well. And have you noticed, has interest in, your, in the, the school gotten bigger and bigger throughout the years, or has it stayed about the same? Or? I, well, in the, you know, I started the school by teaching six people at a time in my backyard. <laughs> uh, so, and, you know, I ran seven two-week, or maybe it was nine two-week workshops that first year, and so the school went through a period of rapid and tremendous growth for the first six or eight years. And uh, now we have 400 students a year come wow, through. that's great. But, um, but then in the, around the, the recession that happened in the early 2000s, uh, the woodworking world saw, saw cultural interest level off. Hmm. And now we're seeing it grow again. And we're seeing more younger people coming in and more women coming in. And that's pretty exciting. But again, they're coming in not necessarily uh, from an interest in craft the way I pursued it, mm-hmm. but, it but something that looks almost the exact same, except for it's informed by the, the newer world that younger people live in and perceive. So there, there is, as I said, this great interest not only in fine craftsmanship and, and work that expresses your voice, but there's also an interest in how do you design a wonderful product, a chair that can be made that's affordable to others. Very interesting. Well, Peter Korn, thank you for so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Brett, thank you so much. I really appreciate you interviewing me. Our guest today is Peter Korn. He is the author of the book, Why We Make Things and Why It Matters, The Education of a Craftsman. You can find that on Amazon.com. Go check it out. It's a really fascinating read. You can also find more information about Peter's work at petercorn.com, and that's corn with the K. And also, if you're interested in checking out the furniture building school that Peter founded and check out one of the classes that they have to offer, you can find more information about that at woodschool.org. Again, that's woodschool.org. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. And if you enjoy this podcast and you get something out of it, I'd really appreciate it if you'd go give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher, whatever it is you use to listen to the podcast. That'll help uh, get the word about the podcast. And uh, 
I would really appreciate that. So until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation.